0: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, here to bring you the insights from the Book of Romans and the Book of Deuteronomy. Today, we are in Chapter 11 of the Book of Deuteronomy, finishing up the third section in the Book of Romans. Today, we're going to discuss Paul's final thoughts on how all of the situation that he's described in the last two chapters has come to a point now where he doesn't believe that the Israelites are without hope, but instead he believes that there is a hope still for the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, and what is to come in the future? He opens the door for their possibility of belief and faith in Jesus Christ. It's going to be a great episode. Let's come along for the ride as we explore what Paul thinks about the people of Israel. So As we're diving into chapter 11 of the Book of Romans, it's helpful to remember how far we've come in this entire book. Um, Paul's first four chapters of the Book of Romans have really been kind of setting the stage for both a Jewish understanding of salvation and a Gentile understanding of salvation. And in a huge way, um, he is trying to unite both groups underneath um, the fact that both groups have been doing pretty terribly as far as following after God's law and following after God's edicts and that they both need Jesus Christ. They both need Jesus Christ um, to be um, a savior for, for them. And he spends a lot of time in chapter three showing that Israel um, has no right to see themselves as um, this elect people group um, that uh, has more special treatment as far as God goes and as far as God's salvation for them goes. It's important to remember, too, that salvation for the Jews didn't mean where do we go when we die, but it meant Uh, being rescued from Roman oppression, being rescued from all of the nations around them, and being uh, re-established as a nation um, with the Lord living and residing in the temple at the top of Mount Zion and with them then shining um, their light uh, to the rest of the nations as a people group. Um, as a result of that, Paul then, uh, launches into chapter four, where he talks about how Abraham actually was chosen first because of his, um, not because of anything he did, um, but instead because, um, uh, God just specifically decided to work with him. And he talks about how, um, one of the things that, uh, Gave Abraham credentials as being a righteous person um, was that he believed in God and trusted in God um, and that God's promises would come true. And trying to uh, work those out through the story of Hagar, for instance, um, or several times in the story when he tries to move God's plans along um, ultimately always fails. And instead, it's when Abraham just trusts God and lets God work um, that God sees it as righteousness. As a result of that, he then um, takes another step back and looks at the story of Adam and how Adam has, um, in many ways, um, situated humanity in the situation in which death is very much at the forefront of every human's life and experience, and um, that Jesus has come along as a uh, reversal of that um action. And Jesus then becomes the person um, that uh, both a Jew and a Gentile can look towards um, to escape from death, um, escape from sin and the power of sin and death. Um, he then talks about in chapter 6 how the important focus of all of that means that um, they can't just believe, but they also have to live out their belief um, through um, dying to that old way, to that way of death um, and that way of sin and. Uh, for Paul, at least, uh, this dying to that old way, that old way of sin and death, is uh, walking the life of Jesus and living as Jesus lived um, and going to the cross as Jesus did and putting yourself last, um, being sacrificial, um, being the kind of person um, that dies to um, a part of yourself that uh, wants to uh, be, in many ways, I think, what Paul is kind of insinuating, like um, the Jews, where they're trying to take matters into their own hands and um, fix themselves when instead God is asking them to trust in him, or in this case, trust in Jesus' way, um, to be the salvation that they need. As a result, um, he then launches into chapter 7, where he really starts to break down the problems with the Jewish way of trying to save themselves, um, and he shows that the law, um, which has been sort of their saving grace for pretty much the entire Old Testament, actually hurt um, Jewish people when it came to um, them trying to live at live out um, uh, they, the life that the law called them to live out. Um, Paul then launches into one of the most beautiful chapters in the book of Romans, chapter 8, where he then expresses how the Holy Spirit replaces the law in a huge way, and the Holy Spirit becomes the life at which a Christian then lives, um, and at which a Jew and a Gentile can both see themselves as united under, and both see themselves as really the Israelites of the Old Testament what they were ultimately called to be, and that it's uh, living a life of the Spirit that will revive all of the death that's been inside of them, that's been caused by both Adam and by the law. And as a result, um, Paul sees this new people that's been revived by the Holy Spirit um, as um going to eventually become co-heirs with Jesus and um bring about um the restoration of creation um and he also sees this co- uh, this new people group that's been revived by the holy spirit living the way of Jesus as um, The um, people that were elected, even back in the Old Testament, as the true seed of Abraham um, and as that um, people group that were foreknown, predestined, um, called, and adopted, um, and now to be glorified um, eventually one day, but already starting to be glorified. He then launches into this section that we're in now, where um, a big question that a Jew would have as a result of that is, well, what about the Old Testament promises specifically to the Jewish people? And so Romans 9 then is a huge exploration of how, even in the Old Testament, um, Jewish Uh, selection has never been about their own abilities to live out the covenant, um, but has instead always been about God's mercy and him deciding to have mercy when he wants to have mercy um, and him deciding to have justice when he wants to have justice. Um, And their whole story and their whole relationship to God has never been one in which the Israelites have been faithful, but instead has been one in which they were always failing and God was having mercy on them because he decided to have mercy on them. This then launches, him into chapter 10, where he then discusses now currently how much they are continuing that very same um, story in the lives of um, the people in Rome um, and in the Roman church, and also just all around, and how um, their situation is, in many ways, just living out the Old Testament story um, in the very present life that they're living and that the Jewish people right now are not believing in God um, because that's been their, their their way of doing things from the very beginning and that they have always been stiff-necked and hard-hearted um, and uh, Uh, Paul reminds um, the Jewish people that um, even in the Old Testament, there is a through line throughout the entire Old Testament of it not being about the letter of the law, but it being about the spirit of the law, and that the word should be very near to their heart, and that word should be Jesus now, um, and that that should be the Uh, shining light in their um, story that then uh, revives them as the Holy Spirit revives us um, in Romans 8 and causes them to be um, a new kind of people um, that can be unified with Gentiles. Um, And he calls them to that um, as the hope of um, that chapter. Um, And so we kind of end... Romans 10 then with this, you know, on a sour note of sorts where he sees that pretty much they are not doing that, that they are not um, living that out, that they have not um, uh, decided to um, keep the word so close to their heart. Instead, they have made it um, into something in which um, it's very legalistic and something in which um, it's more of a set of documents and rules than it is something that they keep very close to their heart. And so we're left with this open-ended question of what now? What, what about the future? What is, what's going to happen now that um, Paul has really in many ways kind of shown for him at least why he has a problem with the Jewish people of the time period? What does he see that all leading to? And that's where we are in chapter 11 is the future forward um, thinking perspective that uh, Paul has, and we'll see a lot of his own thoughts in this as we get into the chapter. So let's go ahead and dive in. I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham, from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people, whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, and ears that could not hear, to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened, so that they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in, granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you will be cut off, and if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening, in part, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written, The deliverer will come from zion he will turn godlessness away from jacob and this is my covenant with them when i take away their sins as far as the gospel is concerned they are enemies for your sake but as far as election is concerned they are loved on account of the patriarchs for god's gifts and his call are irrevocable Just as you, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient, in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on them all oh the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the lord or who has been his counselor who has ever given to god that god should repay them for from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever amen Alright, so loads to talk about as per usual with Paul. Um, we start off with um, him asking, once again, a rhetorical question. I'm sure you're getting uh, tired of Paul asking rhetorical questions. You ever had that one teacher that just uh, really likes to teach people by like not really explaining things, but actually just asking questions of um, the other person? That's, a, that's, what, that's sometimes how I feel about Paul, is uh, Paul just tends to, in many cases, uh, I don't know, uh, tends to uh, like to ask questions and just kind of let people kind of think about the answers on their own. I will give Paul credit, though. At least uh, he tends to answer his own questions pretty quickly in this rhetorical kind of way. This is also kind of, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but um, uh, this kind of uh, way of asking a question and then answering, it's very common for um, Greek and Roman uh, listeners of the day and age. It was uh, considered actually um, one of the highest ways of communication, so... Um, that's a that's a lot of the reason why we get a lot of these kind of like I ask things and by no means and like uh, kind of uh, answering his own rhetorical questions it's a bit of a bit of a flourish and, uh, of Paul's um, to be able to kind of communicate that he does know um, speech language um, and remember these letters were meant to be read aloud so there is an element to them of uh, just kind of a speaking um, nature to them they weren't written to be read they were written to be read aloud um, and so they have kind of that, um, I guess I would say, like vocal component to them. And um, whoever would take the letter um, to the church that it was given to was actually probably instructed in the way that they were to read the letter aloud um, with certain intonations and with certain um, pauses and um, really uh, charged with uh, a way of almost preaching the letter through the way that they were supposed to read it. It's one reason why sometimes I try and make it as much as I can that way. Obviously, I was not trained by Paul in how to read the, the letter aloud, so we kind of miss that here in the time period today. But it is an interesting feature of just uh, how they would go about reading letters in that kind of time period. It was sort of um, the closest they would get, I guess, to like audio recordings, like podcasts and things of that nature. So, yeah, um, it's kind of an interesting feature of that time. Um, so he says, by no means, um, God did not reject his own people. Um, this is a really important point because, um, remember how I said at the opening of this is Romans 11 really kind of helps me understand Romans nine and 10 and really make the sense of Romans 10 and nine in the way that I do, because, um, a huge part to why I don't think that um, Romans 9 is about God electing some people to salvation and some people to hell um, is that Paul kind of says that right here in the sentence is that God is not predestining the Israelites to go to hell because of their unbelief. Um, he's instead uh, doing something very different. And that's kind of the first rhetorical question of this uh, chap uh, verse here is, uh, yeah, like they are not totally, completely rejected and destined to go to a place of fire. Um, Instead, uh, and Paul's um, reason for thinking that not all of the Jewish people are just doomed to go that way and are predestined to go that way is, uh, that, uh, he is an Israelite himself. Um, and he's actually a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin, um, which is, uh, one of the tribes that, uh, I would say has the most prestige in a huge way, because, um, they're one of the few tribes that kind of, it's a long history story, but they kind of got subsumed into the the tribe of Judah. Um, and Judah and Benjamin ended up being like the, Uh, tribes that were left after the other tribes were um, exiled by Assyria. Whole long story, but um, a lot of the Jews of that day and age would have had a lot of pride in the fact that they were from the tribe of Benjamin, um, mainly because uh, Benjamin was one of the few tribes that was able to survive and kind of uh, become aligned with Judah in kind of the last couple centuries of um, the Old Testament. So um, all that to say, he's very proud of that fact. He's he's a descendant of Abraham, and he's from the tribe of Benjamin, um, and uh, he knows that just because th- his blood relationship is with the people of Israel, that doesn't mean that he's just predestined to go to hell or anything like that. He, he himself believes that he's a believer. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. And again, remember how I said that um, him starting out with those he foreknew, he also predestined, was... Um, Uh, really just kind of uh, implying that um, now Christians are living out the life of what the Israelites are. This is where I get this from, is um, uh, the idea here is that, um, once again, we see this coming up, is that the foreknowing of a people group is originally the thing that... um, Uh, The Israelites held as a status is that God foreknew them and then predestined them. Um, And now that's getting applied to Christians back in Romans 9 and 10. Actually, in Romans 8 is when that really starts. Um, And this again is really just like where we kind of see his thinking going is that um, for those he foreknew, that original people that were originally foreknown were the people of Israel. And he says here that God did not reject those people, the people that he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? This is an interesting passage. Um, This is one that you can find. I'll actually kind of pull up the uh, reference here just so you can at least know where this is. Um, This is in 1 Kings 19, verses 10 and 14. Um, This whole story is interesting because um, (laughs) this is um, during the time of um at king ahab um in the northern tribes of israel and at that period in time the, the king was uh we'll just say very far from god and had married a woman that was even further from god and they had um systematically um persecuted a lot of the prophets of that time period that were following God, mainly because they would come and tell Ahab and his wife that they were going to die or that they were going to experience a famine or a drought. And, uh, they were not happy with such negative prophecies. And as a result of that, they wanted them gone. Elijah was one of these people and Elijah actually, um, Uh, Has a whole story that results from that in which um, he uh, challenges all of those that um, all of Ahab's um, prophets um, who are prophets of a god named Baal, and challenges them to see um, whether or not God is going to answer um, him, or if God is going to answer these, or if Baal is going to answer all these prophets that all of Ahab and his wife have. Um, the whole story, um, is a really interesting story. You can go read about it, but the end result is actually that God answers and Baal does not. And Elijah actually, um, uh, forms a coup in which he kills and murders almost like 450 of Baal's priests. As a result of that, um, uh, Ahab and specifically his wife are none too happy about that. And they basically put a bounty on his head and force him to have to run away f- um, because he killed so many of their prophets. And now they're going to try and kill him in return. And so um, he has this really sad story in which he just really wants to die um, because everybody's out to kill him and he feels like he's a failure now after the events um, transpired and he doesn't feel like he has anything worth giving to God anymore. And that is when um, this line uh, comes up. Um, He thinks that, uh, from his perspective at least, um, that uh, God has abandoned all of the prophets of Israel, uh, his prophets, um, and God Tells him in a line when he says this to God that uh, Elijah is wrong Um, and uh, that in fact he has actually reserved for himself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And um, what we learn is actually that um, this is something that um, uh, God continues to do throughout most of um, the periods of all of the really wicked kings and things, is God. Tends to always reserve a small remnant of people that are um, following after him, even in um, periods of time when um, it looks as if like the world is just going so awry. God is always reserving for himself a few select people that have not um, bowed the knee to Baal, um, and. So, Paul uses this as kind of an explanation for himself, at least, of how even within the own people of Israel, there's a thread in which God always reserves within that own people of Israel, people that still follow after God. Um, and that even if you look at the whole group as a whole and say, well, most of the Jews are not um, responding well to Christianity, um, you can see that there's always this small group of people, Paul includes himself, I think, in this category, of people that do believe in Christianity and do value Christianity and do value who Jesus is. And um, Paul, for Paul, it's those people that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Um, as a result, he then, um, launches from that and says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were grace would no longer be grace. So a lot of people here, um, this is another kind of Calvinist first in which a lot of people here are like, Oh yeah, yeah. The hasn't been, it's not by works. It's not by like trying to work your way into salvation. Um, uh, it's by uh, uh, grace that you are saved, right? Like that's, you know, they've been chosen by grace, not by works, right? Um, and, you know, I, I really, you know, it's it's hard because a lot of these verses, it really takes like one, uh, I guess I would say with a lot of these verses, the way you are processing and thinking about it and already tending to be inclined to read it are going to influence how you read verses like this. Um, And there's no way around that is that there are just certain verses like this one in which if you start with a mental framework that makes sense of this verse from that kind of view of Paul is talking about works versus grace as far as salvation goes, um, then yeah, you're far more likely to kind of get into Um, that kind of thinking in which this is all about, um, God choosing some people to be saved and choosing other people not to be saved. That's actually a way you could read it. And it really boils down to where your starting point is when you come to a verse like this. Whereas, you know, we've been working through this entire whole section and the way that we kind of start off with this is Paul is not talking about, um, people being saved from heaven or hell. He is talking about choosing people um, specifically that are going to be the people that are within his grace and that they are going to be people that are his people, are Christians, but it's not necessarily about um, whether or not they are saved or not saved from an afterlife situation, but instead it's about him choosing people that will become Christians that still have to live that out. Otherwise they will fall away. Right. And so the point is not that he's choosing these people in grace to be, um, uh, saved from some uh, eternal destination, but he that he's choosing this people to be his people, right? That's what we've kind of set up over the last couple chapters is that the choice is not a destination choice, it's a vocation choice, it's a choice to be a people that is the people of Christ, right? Um, and so, yeah, that very much is a calling. We talked about that in the last couple chapters of how um, they were called, um, and that calling is very much a choice that God does, and He calls those people to that choice. But whether or not they live that calling out, whether or not they uh, remain within that calling is very much an open-ended question and something that Paul will actually say you can fall out of that calling at any point. And that's what we'll get to at the very end of this chapter. So when you come to verses like this, you know, I do give the Calvinist Points credit in in that like yeah they are chosen by grace like it's not something based off of uh, what they've done in some sense it's just based off of their uh, receptivity I think to God's calling um, and Paul will say it later on in um, this chapter actually um, that it's based off of whether or not they believe in God and His calling or not believe in His calling um, but overall like you know it's still um, the fact that there are some people that God reserves and other people that God does not reserve. And you can't get around that. That is just part of passages like this. And this is that's where I do give people that are more of a Calvinist persuasion points. Where I disagree with a Calvinist tends to be that um, oftentimes they see the choosing as being a choosing of salvation, and I see it as a choosing of a vocation that may have that ends in salvation, but um, we differ on what they're being chosen for, if that makes sense. Um, a Calvinist would say they're being chosen for heaven, um, and I would say they're being chosen for the way of Jesus or being chosen to live out the way of Jesus. Um, and so maybe that's helpful is just to really sum up like the last couple couple of chapters in that. Um, I still think it's a grace chosen. I just think that that grace chosen is very different, and we're actually going to see um, what they're being chosen for um, as being, uh, I guess I would say uh, something that plays itself out at the end of this chapter. And it's going to make a lot more sense if we read it that way, I guess I would say. So overall, that's, that's just my two cents. Again, you've probably heard me say that multiple times throughout the last couple chapters, but it's always helpful to kind of reiterate it. Um, the point being that their, their chosenness is not by works. Um, and remember here, he's not bringing up this to say, um, uh, works here uh is an attempt to earn salvation or something like that he's not going against that necessarily like if he were going against that um sorry by the way if you hear like uh, a motor in the background that's my my dad's uh mowing out our lawn so if you happen to hear some like uh uh noises outside or any kind of like mechanical uh noise that's my dad but um when you think about why he is bringing up in verse 6, and if by grace, then it's not based on works, what he's addressing is not that he thinks Jews are trying to um, earn their way into heaven and uh, Christians are trying to uh, rely on Jesus to get them into heaven. That's not the framework that he's um, combating. What he's combating is um, the concept of being chosen and working out that chosenness um, as a uh, thing in which you uh, work it out through um, following and adhering to the law or um, if it's just something in which God chooses people um, to that vocation, regardless of whether they're a Jew or a Gentile. I think that's the big thing that he's really trying to address here. And so like, let me make this really like, let me break this down for you. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were grace would no longer be grace. So the idea here is that think about Abraham again, right? This is where Paul would go. Abraham was chosen by God, not because of anything Abraham did, right? Abraham was just the person that God decided to work with. And then God made all of these different pro- promises to Abraham, right? So the choosing came first, right? Abraham did not do any work, do any kind of thing that earned God's choosing of him as the person that God is going to work with, right? Abraham was just chosen. And that's, who he's going to work with now. And now Abraham is God's people. In the very same way, that's how he sees this remnant of Israel, um, this people group within Israel. They're just reserved. They're chosen as the people that he's going to deal with that he sees as his people that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And even within that, there's kind of this interesting thing of like the fact that they didn't bow the knee to Baal kind of is a work of sorts it's not it's it's the absence of a work but it's still in some sense like shows their heart and that's what i'm getting at here right um there's a lot of things you could get into with that but at the at the very like base level i do think that paul's point here is to say that it's not something in which they follow a bunch of laws and codes and edicts and that's them what makes them uh people that God is then going to select and be the people that he's going to set up as his special people. That's not how it's going to work. As what Paul sees is that God just selects people regardless of their works um, and that he is then offering them that grace of selection to that people. Um, And then As a result of that, it's their job to then continue in that way and to live the way that they are then selected in. They are to remain in that way all through their life. And if they remain in that way all through their life, then they shall receive um, salvation, right? Right. We've talked about that in a lot of the other episodes and things of that nature. Um, So it's really important to remember that the grace of a person comes through the forgiveness of their sins, not through their eternal destination. Their eternal destination is something that comes way later on. Um, the The grace that's happening is in God selecting people and saying to this specific people, um, this is the people I'm going to work with. This is the people that I've decided to have mercy on. This is the people that as far as their eternal destination, as long as they don't do things that, uh, uh, go awry of my way of doing things, right? Um, if they don't, if they step away from the way of Jesus, then I will be, uh, wrathful on them and we saw that in Romans 2 right um, but as long as they stay within the way right they are a people that are receiving grace in this election that's happening hopefully that makes a lot of sense I, I find a lot of times with this it, it it's it's one of those things where um, it's so nuanced and so specific I guess I would say that like uh, a lot of times uh, it can become kind of I don't know it can become be hard even to like represent what you're actually believing. Um, and so I find, I find a lot of the time that, um, uh, because it's so nuanced of a view, um, you'll find people on either side of the aisle that kind of uh, assume that you're either on their camp or against them. Um, and uh, walking down that middle line is so, so hard sometimes because there are certain elements of it that I do agree with. And then certain elements I don't agree with. So, um, and again, remember this is all just my opinions on it. So go and do your own reading and research on passages like this. Um, but again, I, I think that there are two things to really keep in mind here when it comes to um it being by grace and not by works. Um, uh, This idea is not um, that he's talking about earning your salvation versus not earning your salvation, but he's talking about election here and whether election is based on grace or if election is based on works. Um, That's the first thing to keep in mind is that we're talking about election, not um, salvation. And then two, um, that election itself is not being elected to an eternal destination. It's being elected to be the people of God that God is going to work with. Hopefully those two ideas make sense. If you can grasp those two ideas, you've pretty much got the verse. Verse seven, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain, right? So the idea here is that the people of Israel for a very long time have wanted to obtain the status as the people of God. They've wanted to be God's people because if they could be God's people and be called God's people, if they could be that people that um, God is going to bless with all of the things that we've been talking about in Deuteronomy, they're going to get all the things that happen, right? All of the, the, the city is going to be on the hill. They're going to be known as God's people. They're going to have God's name written on their hearts, right? And they're going to be shining out to the rest of the world. That's the ideal dream for an Israelite to be known as that. And so the point is, is that they've been trying to earn that status as God's people. They've been trying to earn the election of God as, um, Paul sees it. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. So notice what he says here. Um, uh, Israel was seeking after that, uh, status and that a chosen amount of people within Israel did, um, actually receive it as they were seeking it. Um, but the wider people group of Israel did not receive it. And so that's a really important point because seeking this kind of, um, status as God's people, seeking This relationship with God is really the way we would say it today. Seeking that is not a work, right? Because he said in the line before, um, if it's by grace, then it can't be based on works. So that idea of seeking um, God and earnestly trying to obtain that relationship with God in, in and of itself is not considered a work. It's the way that you go about seeking that. That becomes a work. And for Paul, the way that the Old Testament Jews and into the New Testament attempted to seek that was through the law. And for Paul, that was not good. For um, this small elect group of people within the Jewish faith, what they have done as they have sought that through Jesus Christ. And that has been what has elected them, right? So, think of it that way as like, it's not even just that God is just like arbitrarily choosing, is that they are in some sense seeking as well. So, there are really three things with these verses to keep in mind. One, that these people are seeking to be the people of God and to be elected. um, And that, that seeking to be elected is then what God does for the people that seek it in the right way. That's point number one. Um, The way that uh, Paul sees them seeking it in the right way can't be through works, but it has to be through grace, and so that's where Jesus comes in. And then finally, that seeking to be the people of God is not seeking a final destination but is seeking to be in close relationship and being in covenantal relationship with God. Those are the three points. Again, I've said those already, but I think it's helpful to kind of reiterate all of those points, um, especially because this is just so dense. Um, So he talks about then um, the elect among them did, but the others were hardened. And then he um, quotes a passage from, um, interestingly, uh, Deuteronomy 29, which is a... uh, a chapter that we just went through on the boring bible podcast I won't bring up a lot of this because you can go and actually listen to that um, uh, episode that we did on the boring bible podcast and where we focused on chapter 29 so a lot of what was there um, um, you'll find some uh, really interesting tidbits that um, kind of show why paul is um, quoting from that passage in particular and i will say that it's a pretty Um, simple reason for why he's quoting from there. Um, This was a quote in which, uh, for the most part, uh, the focus is on how... um, the people of Israel have not been a people that have seen or understood what God is doing. And it's a quote that Moses says of the people, um, because he understands this people very well, and he knows that this people is uh, not a people that um, have a good track record with God already. And Paul is bringing back that quote to remind um, everybody that's reading or listening to this letter being read aloud that. Um, once again, the Jews don't have a good track record with God and that they have been given the spirit of stupor and eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear To up to this very day, Paul says, because um, it has been part of their entire story from the very beginning, um, is that they really, it's it's very much that same like kind of Pharaoh story where they harden their hearts on their own willpower for a while and then God decided to, Harden their hearts after they harden their hearts of their own free will a couple of times. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's very much that kind of, um, I guess I would say, uh, story that's happening in the lives of the Israelites. In verse nine, David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. This is another passage of scripture that Paul takes. This is Psalm 69. Um, this this whole psalm is really um, interesting because uh, this is a psalm in which David sees himself as being persecuted by a lot of people that are around him, and uh, he finds that he's being persecuted for doing the right thing. He sees himself as uh, worshiping God and following after God's edicts and decrees, and he finds that he's just undergoing a lot of suffering for um, following after God and his plan, and it's people that don't like God that also are not liking him because he's following after God. As a result, David then kind of lashes back out and prays to God that God will then make the people that are persecuting him um, be a, make their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. He basically prays that they have their eyes darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. And the idea here is that for um, Paul, Paul is taking all of that and mapping it on to the Jewish people and how the Jewish people have been the ones persecuting him. And they've been the ones that have Uh, been aggravating towns and getting him uh, stoned and and exiled out of towns and so for him uh, he sees what David says of the people that were persecuting him because he was following after God, and he maps it on to the Jewish people themselves and how um, they too have had their eyes darkened because they've been persecuting Paul all this time, which is a really interesting way to kind of show even his own struggle with the Jewish people through the story of David in that psalm. But that's not the whole story. In verse 11, he then says, um, another rhetorical question again, I ask, did they stumble so far beyond recovery? Once again, he reiterates that, um, he does not believe that they've fallen so far that they can't be saved, right? He believes that, um, there is still hope for Israelites. Even the people that are persecuting him right now, there's still hope. Even if their eyes have been blinded, right? even if they haven't been chosen in this moment, um, they can still be saved. That's, that's something that I really want to drive home, and this is what really formulates the way that I read all of these chosen passages, is that this is right here, right? Like uh if if it was a choosing in which one is chosen for salvation and one is chosen for damnation, then a verse like this wouldn't make sense, right? Um it would not make sense because uh he says that they haven't fallen so far as to be beyond recovery. And the only way that they um uh can not be can both be chosen and also not be chosen to uh, fall beyond recovery is if the chosenness is not about their destination, but their chosenness is about something else, right? That's the only way a verse like this makes sense, which is why I read it that way, is just to keep it um, uh, consistent with Paul's thinking. Uh, I don't think it's the right way to read Paul to think of it as... um, being chosen to salvation or chosen not to salvation Um, because being chosen to being saved makes a verse like this not make sense, right? Um, Whereas if being chosen to be the people of God and to be the family of God, uh, which is a thing that you then have to live out the rest of your life that then results in salvation, right? Like a two-step plan instead of a one-step plan. One-step plan is you're just chosen and then, nothing you can do about it, like you're just saved, right? That would be a one-step plan. Um, A two-step plan would be you're chosen to be the family of God, and then you have to live that out. I think that's also what Romans 6 is arguing, is that you have to live that out. And that would be a two-step plan. You're chosen, and then you have to live that out, and then salvation comes, right? Um, As a result, I think that that's what is coming here is that he does see that people that are not chosen that are not that remnant of people that he's reserved that 7000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal like you know he he knows that there's a lot of Jews out there that have in his mind bowed the knee to Baal but he says that they have not stumbled so far as to go beyond recovery so you can you can basically be unchosen Right? Like you cannot be chosen and you can still be brought into the family of God. That's his point here. Um, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Now, I know a lot of you might be asking the question well, what about the fact that the salvation here is brought up right here. That seems to indicate that he is talking about salvation. And again, this is where we have to be really careful with Paul because salvation can mean different things for Paul. Salvation can mean um, deliverance from sin. It can mean um, salvation as far as uh, your final destination's deliverance from hell. Um, and I I really do believe that anytime salvation comes up in Paul, he's not talking about deliverance or saving from hell. I think he's talking about deliverance from the broken relationship that has existed between God and the people, right? So um, it's really careful. We have to be really careful even what we're saying you're being saved from, right? Um, and again, I, think, I don't think that I'm too far off on this because in, in uh, Romans two, he talks about how there's still a saving or a salvation that's yet to come um, in um, that final judgment. And it's that final judgment that's going to reveal um, really what was going on inside a person's heart all that time. Um, and as a result, right? Like that is a completely different salvation than what the salvation he's talking about in, like something like Romans three and four, where he's talking about restoring the relationship between God and the Gentiles and their relationship of brokenness because the Gentiles have been living a life of sin all their life and uh, doing things in such an effrontery way to God. It's really hard to kind of map that out when we have like theological definitions for salvation, right? Like we, we have definitions of salvation as meaning Oh, salvation is something when we're talking about the afterlife alone. And it's, you know, it's really important too, even in the Old Testament, when um, the Old Testament uh, translators translate the words for um, rescuing, they oftentimes use the word salvation there um, in place of rescue. um, When I actually think it's better to translate it as rescue um, because rescue is less, uh, I guess, it's less theologically um, uh, dense. And it's a word that I think kind of really uh, doesn't have that kind of theological um, uh, what's the term Uh, like that theological, like back catalog of very big um, doctrinal debates all been around this word. Right. Um, And so as a result, I think, I think, Sometimes, when we come to even passages in the New Testament where we see something like salvation all of a sudden getting mentioned, we really have to be careful there and ask, Well, okay, is this, is he talking about heaven and hell? Is he talking about being saved from? um sin is he talking about being saved from death what well, what's going on here you know um and i think th- that here in this case especially with the context that that's around it salvation has come to the gentiles to make israel envious i think what's what he's talking about here is he's not talking about all these Gentiles are dying off and now they're all going to heaven and that's making all these Israelites jealous. I don't think that's the context. I think what he's saying here is that God has restored the relationship with Gentiles where they are now becoming the family of God. They have, they have now been delivered in the way that Israel wanted to be delivered. Um, and as a result of them now being delivered and now being back in right relationship with God, um, that is making Israel envious because that's the thing they've wanted and they've wanted to do by following the law this whole time. Hopefully that makes sense. Again, it's, it's I, it, teaching Romans is one of those things too, where it really depends on how you interpret terminology, like the word salvation, righteousness, um, law, um, all of these different terms And how you define those terms will inevitably define how you read this book. Uh, And so it's really important to really think about what those terms mean and how you are defining those terms. Don't even let me define them for you. Just go and figure out for yourself, like, how are you defining these terms? Um, What does salvation mean for you? Does salvation mean every time it comes up in the book of Romans, does it mean being saved from uh, hell and um, being saved to heaven? Does it mean being saved from a Romans one living a life of debauchery and being then brought into a life of living like God wants you to live, which is kind of how I take it. Does it mean being saved from um, sin um, being, uh, having the status as a sinner and no longer then having a status as a sinner there are multiple ways that you can look like look at the term salvation and define it and it's really important to nail down how you best think paul is using that word so that it then influences how you read the book of romans and again like i said i'm not trying to just like paint a picture of this is the right way and then everybody else is wrong What I'm trying to do is show you my way of reading terms like this, at least as one option. And then that can then be a launching point for you to then go and learn and to read and to read many different perspectives. And also my hope is by hearing probably a different perspective than you grew up hearing, it'll give you enough of a door open that you can understand that there are multiple ways to read a book like Romans, and you won't be so cemented in one view, um, but instead be open to multiple different views. Because like I said, we're all Christians. We're all trying to figure this book out. We're all trying to understand this book. And merely the fact of me giving a different opinion than what you might have heard growing up is going to help understand that, oh, there are multiple ways to read this, and that can help me so that I'm not just very staunchly in one opinion, but now have heard multiple different opinions and can then come to the conclusion that I best feel represents what Paul is actually communicating. Hopefully that makes a lot of sense. But again, a lot of this time, it's just kind of down to how we decide to um, decide our terms and what what those terms mean. Um, and again, each of us are going to have our own arguments for why our terms and how we're defining them make sense. A Calvinist is just as much going to have that as I am. Um, and we're, we're all, I think the best way to go about that is just to be honest about the fact that that's what we're doing, you know, but if their transgression means riches for the world, talking about Jews here and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? So his question here is if their current transgression or sin actually is um, uh, one translation you could use for that word transgression. Um, If their transgression, if them not believing in Jesus means riches for the world here, the world means Gentiles and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, right? How much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? This is really interesting question. So for him, he sees that they've rejected and transgressed because they have not believed, but he does have this hope that they are going to come back and be fully included, um, in the family of God, right? That like, in some sense, they weren't, not all of them were chosen that there was a group within them that was chosen, that is part of the family of God now. The rest of them have not been chosen, and they are a group of people that God can decide how he wants to deal with them. And what Paul sees as a hope for them is that he thinks that ultimately one day they will all fully be included, um, that they will be brought into the family through their disobedience. This is something wild that we're going to get to at the very end of this passage. And I just, I really just want to kind of let Paul speak on this. I'm not going to give as much commentary on this. I'm just kind of going to let that hang in the room, so to speak, because it's something just to meditate on what Paul says there. I am talking to you Gentiles in as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. So he breaks from his argument and says, look, I'm, addressing Gentiles mostly right now because most of you know that like I've become known as an apostle to the Gentiles and how is he known as an apostle to the Gentiles well if you go back and read the story of Acts it's because several times he tried to preach to Jews and they completely rejected his message and so he throws up his hands in one um, passage in acts and says fine if you're not going to believe I'm just going to go to the Gentiles. That's a passage you can read in the book of Acts. And so he brings this up as to like, yes, I know that everybody knows me as the apostle to the Gentiles and everybody knows that I'm mostly addressing Gentiles because uh, of the fact that um, Jews rejected my teaching. I take pride in my ministry. So he, he likes the fact that he is that Apostle to the Gentiles. Like he likes the fact that he is bringing salvation to that. And you'll see that throughout the whole book of Acts as well. In the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. So his hope there is that through him being an apostle to the Gentiles and through word of mouth of so many people starting to believe in the Messiah as Jesus, he's hoping that a lot of Jews will start to hear the power that's being done in these Christian circles and be envious of it and want to then come back to that family and want to be a part of that family, right? Um, Through envy, which I think is a really interesting, even strategy for Paul is that he can see envy as a way in which that might bring the Jews back into the fold, um, which is a really interesting way to think of envy as something that could be used for good and not for evil. He says in verse 15, for if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And remember, he's, again, he sees them rejecting the faith right now. Um, and yet he has this understanding that one day they are going to accept everything. And when they accept what he sees is happening is that's when the resurrection is going to happen, life from the dead, right? If the rejection brought reconciliation to the world, it was the uh, rejection of Paul's teachings that led him to be the first preacher to the Gentiles. Um, If that rejection led to him being the preacher to the Gentiles, the apostle to the Gentiles, what will their acceptance be but the resurrection? Once they finally accept, he thinks that the end is going to come. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. So the idea here being, um, if the part of the Jewish people, the elect part of the people is offered to be the first fruits of this thing called Christianity and they're considered holy, then where they came from is also holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches, right? And there's a big debate about who is the root and who are the branches is the root. Jesus is the root Israel. Everybody knows that the branches are Gentiles that there's no debate about that. He actually says it in a line afterwards. Um, but there's a kind of like trying to figure out like what, you know, who is the root, right? Because the branches in verse 17 will be, uh, Israel actually. And the root, um, is thought to be, uh, uh, Jesus or Christianity or God and the relationship with God. Um, but it's, it's sort of an open ended question of, uh, what is verse 16 referring to when it refers to dough and first fruits and, uh, the first fruits of the dough and then the root and the branches. Um, I think for my, for my money, um, first fruits here is something that he calls Jesus, um, in Romans eight. And so, um, a lot of, a lot of commentators have argued that, um, the first part of the dough is not, um, uh, Israel or the elect of Israel, um, but is Jesus and that the, the whole batch then is where Jesus came from. Um, and Jesus came from Israel and so that the whole whole batch is Israel um, there have been some debates about is Israel ethnic Israel or is Israel um, Christian Israel um, a lot of different debates on that that's one view um, for what I tend to go is kind of what I was explaining a second ago is that uh, I think with the context of what's just been talked about, how the whole context of this has been that there is a people within the people of Israel that have been elected and that the rest of the people are not elected. Um, And Paul very much believes that the people that have not been elected are still at some point in the future going to believe in Jesus. And so I think it makes a lot more sense if verse 16 is saying that The dough offered as first fruits, um, that part of the dough that's offered as first fruits is the part of Israel that is believing currently. And then he's saying that the whole batch is the rest of Israel and that he sees in some way that they are also holy or going to be holy one day. I think that's. From the context, that seems to make the most sense. Um, He says, if the root is holy, so are the branches, right? And I think here he's also just kind of using that same idea of if where a elect people come from uh, is if there's the source of where the elect people come from is. An ethnic group of people, he sees that that whole ethnic group of people is holy. Um, But then he's going to kind of talk about how he's going to give some caveats to that whole dimension in verse 17. So, I think he starts out very general here and just kind of makes a very logical statement, right? If part of a group of people is holy, then it's probably likely that the whole group is going to be holy. I think that's all he's saying in verse 16 and just using two different metaphors, dough and a root with branches, right? In verse 17, though, he's going to give several clarifications to that general statement. Again, this is my belief. and again, I would say there have been so many different interpretations of that, like go and read your own commentaries on that and try and figure it out. Um, but I think this makes the most sense according to the context of what he's getting at. In verse 17, he says, if some of the branches have been broken off um, here, it's very obvious that he's talking about um Jews that have been broken off. And you though a wild olive shoot have been grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing sap of the olive root. here. The olive root has to be Jesus. There's no way it's not Jesus. Um, Do not consider yourself superior to those other branches, the branches that have been broken off. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So the idea being that the, Uh, root is Jesus and supports this wild branch that's been grafted in. That is the um, Gentiles, right? And he's calling them to not consider themselves as superior to the branches that were broken off so that they could then be grafted in. Um, Because if they do one, that's going to give them a bunch of pride and he doesn't want them to have pride. Um, This is also a reason why I don't think it's correct to view election as salvation, because if you're elected to salvation, you would have a pride kind of there. You would see yourself as better than the branches that have been cut off. Um, But Paul doesn't see it that way. Paul sees he wants those Gentiles to see themselves as equal, even with the branches that have been broken off. And what is the reason why um, he says that they should consider themselves equal? He says, "You will say then branches were broken off so that I could be grafted grafted in, and that's where they should get their esteem and pride from." And he says, "Granted, that's true, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble, for if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either." And this is another big point that uh, you know I've said it many times on this podcast, but it's just. I think it's there in Romans is Paul has a very clear view of what it means to be a Christian. And he has a very clear understanding that you can lose your salvation. I just think it's in Romans. And this is one of the best examples of that is Paul is showing that you can be broken off and be broken out of the way of the faith, right? Like you are, you can be broken off from the root if you stop having faith, right? If you stop having belief, if you start believing in your own ability as a branch that's been grafted in, instead of believing in the root that is giving you all that nourishing sap that you need, if you start believing in that, um, you will be Cut off, Right. Like that's, that's what he says. You will be cut off. Um, you will be broken off just like the natural branches, the ones that are more likely to be getting the sap because they haven't had that grafting in process. Um, like they will have the same story. And so for him, it's like, don't think of yourself in this like elected category in which you're now receiving this grace that, um, Uh, the others that have been broken off are not receiving and don't pat yourself on the back that God is giving you this election status now, but instead tremble because you could lose that status very quickly (laughs) is really what it boils down to you. Just as much as the Jews were elected in the old Testament and lost that status pretty quickly. A Gentile can be elected and lose that status very quickly. I think that's what he's getting at here. And again, I think that that's just a pretty standard reading of this whole section here. And most of this part of it is not really contested, I would say. Most of this is kind of easily interpreted. Some of the stuff we were talking about in the verses ahead, that's harder to interpret. But this section, this point right here, um, pretty clear. And because of its clarity, I do think that that has implications for how we think of election. If election is something that can be lost, then election needs to be reconsidered as what is it that we're being elected to, right? Like, what are we being chosen for? Um, Are we being chosen for an internal destination or are we being chosen to walk in community with God as a family of God that takes effort and willpower and the Holy spirit, as he'll say in Romans eight, and it takes all of those things combining to then result in an eternal destination. Right. Um, hopefully all of that kind of makes sense. Um, again, like I said, this is just kind of part of Paul is kind of having all these things kind of coalesce at the very end here. Um, So he says, you know, consider yourselves uh, on shaky ground. And then verse 22, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. There is again, like there is a, there's a very, you must continue in this component to this whole election thing, right? You have to continue in his good graces, right? Uh, That's actually a great term. Like when I say to continue in one's good graces, that doesn't nullify the fact that he's still giving me good graces, but you do have to continue in it, right? You know, like just because I'm continuing in someone's good graces does not mean that I'm Working to achieve or earn those graces, the graces are there, but the point—and this is what we said several chapters ago—but I'll reiterate it here. The point is that you can walk away from those good graces. You can do things that um, uh, spit in the face of that good grace. You can do things that um, uh, show that you're living a life in which you're not walking in their good graces, but you're walking. In their Paul here, uh, kind of uses the example of walking in their uh, sternness, right? Like their good sternness, um, and yeah, like that. That's something that I think is in this book: is that there is a component to this election in which you have to live that election out. Um, you have to live that choosing out, or it will be cut off. Um, and that's what he says. Otherwise, you will be cut off. Again, he just says that straight out. And if they do not persist enough unbelief here, talking about, um, uh, Jews, if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. So they've been broken off, right? That doesn't mean that they're chosen to damnation now because they haven't been elected. It means that they have just as much of a chance of getting in if they believe, right? Like, yeah, like it's not, it's not. All without, And remember, Paul really does believe, I think, that they have this hope that because of some of the promises made in the Old Testament, they ultimately will believe one day. That's something that Paul really um, uh, believes in. And it's something that I think if, you know, there's a lot of talk about, like, uh, the end of the world coming soon and Jesus coming back soon. I do not believe that Jesus will come back until I see Israel like as a, I'm not even talking like the nation of Israel located in the Middle East. I'm just saying until we see a huge group of Jewish people become Christians, I do not see um, any of the end time stuff coming to pass or even, thinking that that's worthy of bringing up as a conversation. Like for a lot of people, it's like how awful the world is, is the first indicator of whether or not the end times are upon us or something like that. For me, my first indicator would be what Paul is saying here in this chapter of how it's all of a sudden a huge conviction and convincing that happens in jewish people in which they all start to believe in jesus and call on jesus as the messiah if i started seeing that on a widespread not just located in the middle east but if i started seeing that just for a huge swath of pretty much anyone that's jewish if i started seeing that i think i'd be far more likely to believe we are in an end time scenario um than anything else, honestly. Um, I, I think that's more indicative of the end is near than anything else. Because I mean, like Paul even says, like if they start to like believe, right. Um, that is going to signify that the resurrection is pretty soon to come, you know? Um, so yeah, like, I mean, I think that that's, that's something to think about even, um, for those of you that are interested in like revelation and it's outcroppings. I don't think that, um, I think that should be your first barometer. Maybe even more so than whether or not times are tough, or the situation is godless, or you know, um, things are just getting more and more, um, uh, horrific. Um, when you look at the news, um, again, that's a that's a podcast for another day. But it that just feels more accurate, even to what's going on here, and again, I just want to make it very clear. Paul does not have this, like you were chosen. So you're out kind of philosophy. You were not chosen. So you're out viewpoint. He has, you were not chosen, but you can still believe even though you were not chosen. That's just something we see in this chapter here. All right. So verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Remember his, his hope is that these Gentiles just don't think that they are all that and that they don't need the Jews anymore and that they can just all start believing in Christianity and be this grafted in branch that's attached to the root and they don't need the broken off branches anymore. And that they just see themselves as Christians that are better than all the Jews. And why should we want the Jews back in our church in Rome? Remember the whole situation that's going down in Rome. So all the Jews were exiled from the church and now they're all trying to come back into the church. And you could see a huge portion of them saying as Gentiles to the Jews, well, you have all this weird stuff with the law. You're, you're not really like, a fully committed Christian because you're not really like doing it the way that we're, we've been doing it. You have all these weird extra laws. We just don't really, you know, we see ourselves as like truer Christians than you guys that have all these hangups with the law and stuff like that in the old Testament. Like you could see uh, Gentiles making those kinds of arguments. And so he's like, look, I don't want you to become conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening, right? So they have a history of being a people that's not, believing in both Christianity and not believing in God in the old Testament in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. So that's another barometer you have to have all of the Gentiles. Their full number has to come in and then all of Israel will then be saved. And that's what he says in this way. All Israel will be saved. There's been a huge debate about this of like, there are some people that believe that he's not talking about, Israel, ethnic Israel here, but he's talking about Israel as the uh, church Israel Um, because he says not all who are Israel are Israel in chapter nine of Romans. And so a lot of people draw from that specific verse and apply it here to this passage here and say, okay, he's not talking about the nation of Israel or the people that are ethnically Israel. He's talking about the church um, that is now Israel, the elect people of God, basically, that are called Israel. I've tried to stay away from that because, one, I think that that is not, uh, not true necessarily to all of Paul's argument, especially in the context here where it's very clear to me that he seems to be concerned with ethnic Israel in this entire passage, especially with just how much uh, separation between Jews and Gentiles he talks about with all of these different verses, Um, saying, for instance, Israel as a noun is used in the verse before in verse 25, and nobody debates that he's talking about ethnic Israel there, right? Like, it says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Nobody debates that that is talking about ethnic Israel. So why then all of a sudden would Paul switch in his terminology from talking about ethnic Israel to then talking about the church Israel in verse 26? It seems more like someone wants it to be that, to make it fit with their doctrines, more so than actually looking at the context of the verses around it and making a good judgment. Again. That's just an evaluation on my part. You can go and do your own research and decide for yourself. In the same way that we were talking about salvation and the context surrounding salvation, do the same thing with Israel. Israel can mean different things. Again, we go back to that same discussion I was having about terminology and how terminology affects how you read Romans, and so it's really important to address what do you think Paul means by Israel in every instance of Israel coming up in the book Um, and to try and keep it consistent to the context around it. That is the thing that I think is the big important thing to take away. And like I said, Israel comes up in the verse right before it. Israel means ethnic Israel. I think, therefore, the verse after it, we should assume at least the first meaning should always be, it means ethnic Israel. So, um, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverance will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is actually from Isaiah 59. Um, what's interesting here is if you go to Isaiah 59, it's verses 20 and 21. Um, the NIV version of this is pulled from the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible. And uh, so it will look quite different. Um It reads, the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you, and my words that I have put in my mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children and on the lips of your descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. So that's the NIV pulled from the Masoretic text. This is the Septuagint translated in English, and this is what the Septuagint says. Um... Uh, verse 20. "The, The deliverer will come for the sake of Zion, and he will turn ungodliness back from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, which is upon you, and my words, which I put in your mouth, will not cease from your mouth or from the mouth of your descendants. For the Lord has spoken from the present to the end. So notice a big kind of difference between those two. I just wanted to call that out in case you go back and like go to that reference uh sometimes uh the septuagint is very different than uh our translations that pull from the masoretic text and this is one of those examples in which it's pretty different and the point here just to bring those up is to show that um in the septuagint version the focus specifically is on god promising to the people of israel to make them a godless nation, whereas in the NIV version, it almost makes it sound as if they themselves will uh, live uh, a blameless life before God rescues them. Um, And so because of that difference, I just wanted to highlight that um, it's just a difference in uh, the Septuagint versus the Masoretic text. And whenever you find a difference like this, always go with what the New Testament authors quote, because that's going to make more sense for their argument and what they're doing. And so for Paul, at least his point here is he sees that God is promising to Israel that he is going to get rid of all of the wickedness and stubbornness that they have had since the very beginning of the relationship with him. And he sees this as part of the covenant that he has made with them. And so there's still that promise that's yet to be fulfilled, which is why Paul believes that the whole of ethnic Israel will eventually come to believe in God. He believes that because... This promise was made to them and uh, again, This is where I differ with some people that interpret this promise being adapted to the church and ethnic Israel now no longer has this promise made to them. I think this promise was made to the nation of Israel in Isaiah 59, so therefore we should always think of it as a promise first for the Jews, and if it has any ramifications for Gentiles, it's because we've been grafted in, not because it was a promise made to us, if that makes any sense. So he sees this as a um, covenant that um, he's made with them when he takes away their sins. Verse 28, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. (laughs) So what's interesting here is he sees that the fact that the Jews are enemies of God, as far as the gospel, the good news is concerned. They don't believe in the gospel. So they're enemies but notice this notice again this is this is probably the best example of why i don't think election and the gospel are the same thing if election and the gospel he would not have this sentence in this chapter but as far as election is concerned they are loved on account of the patriarchs so election is something like i've been saying throughout this whole whole section election is something that is separate from the gospel good news. It's something that happens to Israel in specific and then happens to a subgroup of people within the Jewish people and to Gentiles that believe. Okay. So keep that in mind. Election is not the gospel. Election is the thing that happened to the patriarchs to abraham that then works its way through the whole jewish story we talked about this in romans 9 works its way all the way through the um jewish story and we see time and time again god is choosing to work with people that are not great people um that are people that uh don't in many ways deserve to be chosen. Think all of the judges and people like Samson, people that are in the hall of faith that oftentimes don't deserve to be in the hall of faith, right? Choosing to deal with those kinds of people and it's whether or not they live up to that choosing, which defines their outcome, right? That's what we're talking about when we're talking about election, right? Um, We're talking about being chosen to be uh, in the family of God, not being, being chosen to be saved does that make sense and even you could even say they're being chosen to be saved they just have to live that out if that makes any sense um, so you could even say that and it not totally be wrong it's just confusing um, and that's why I'm trying to avoid saying that you know um, and and that's the important part here is as far as the gospel is concerned the Jews are enemies right now but they're still elected is Paul's point. Even though they've got a, at the very beginning of this chapter, he just went on to say there's a a subgroup within them that has been elected as far as Christianity goes, they're still elected as far as God choosing them as a nation, right? As an ethnic people group for God's gift and his call are irrevocable. So it's not like he just pulled the rug out from underneath Abraham and he's now no longer going to deal with Jews, just going to deal with Gentiles or basically any Jew or Gentile that now believes in Christianity. No, he still got all the promises he made to the people of Israel ethnically, and he still got all the gifts that he's promised to that people yet to be fulfilled, and that's something that's going to happen in the future. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. Think about Romans one, they've been disobedient for almost, uh, three, 4,000, however many years they've been around as a culture and society all the way up to this point. And, uh, God now is having grace and mercy on them and allowing them to be part of the family of God. Right he's allowing them entrance. He's allowing them to have a relationship with Jesus. He's allowing them to have a restored relationship with God, right? All that's happening because the Jews are not believing. And it's because of their disobedience and not believing in Christianity that's letting all of these people now be able to become part of the family of God. That's what he says here. They are now, because of that disobedience, allowing the Gentiles to be brought into the faith. So they too now have become disobedient in order that they may now too receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. So his point is Gentiles, you were disobedient for a very long time and that ended up in mercy. It ended up in mercy because that's what y'all are getting to reap the rewards of right now. So now they are rejecting the gospel right now and they are, being disobedient. And yet where does Paul think that's going to end? In mercy as well. So that everyone basically is unified under the same story of they're both living a life in which they both have a period of time in which they just live a very disobedient life. And then God's going to bring them back into the fold and have mercy on them. And that's what he says in the final verse for God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So once again, we're back to Romans three. We're all in the same boat, right? Everybody is disobedient, and both a Jew and a Gentile, and we all are going to be brought into mercy at the very end. There's a lot of implications to that. There's that's the closest I think Paul ever gets to being a universalist here in the Bible. I don't think this is a universalist verse, but it's the closest he does get. And I think that that is the thing that then launches him into. This ending section of the whole section that we've been going through where he's been talking about Jews and he talks about how he just can't shut up about how awesome God is. And that's what these last couple verses are, is he pulls from several different threads of different passages in the old testament and just launches into a psalm of praise to God for being the kind of God that doesn't just abandon people of Israel to their fate because they don't believe anymore, but instead sees them as a people that he made promises to and that he loves and a people that he will eventually have mercy on one day, right? And sees that that story is the very same story that he's having with the Gentiles and that he's treating all humanity this way. And this is where Adam comes back into the picture as the representative of all humanity. And now Adam's death that he brought on the world is being erased and everybody is going to be restored back to God and have a good relationship with God. As long as they continue to live that out. Right. Um, all of that for Paul is just wonderful. And so, yeah, he says in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. So like who could have thought that God would, handle israel the way he's handling israel you know um this is a wild ride for the people of israel the nation the ethnic group of israel right that's a this is a crazy 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 story twists and turns and who could have thought that that was how he's going to do it is he's actually going to use israel's disobedience to let the gentiles become what the jews have always wanted to be and as a result of that that's then going to eventually result in the jews coming back to the faith. Um, beautiful who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who, who gave him all these plans? Who said this is the best strategy for doing this, right? No one. He just came up with all this. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Who has given God some kind of like, um, good thing or good work or some kind of good thing that God has to like be favorite show favoritism to that person because, um, God owes them something, right? No one. God doesn't owe anything to anyone. God is doing this all because he loves people and loves humanity. For from him and through him and for him are all things. From him, meaning he created all things. Through him, meaning that he is the thing that actually caused all things to happen. And for him, meaning that all things exist because he loves all things and they're all for him. All things are. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's a beautiful doxology that he ends on there. Um, And I hope you understand why he launches into that, because for him the story of the Jewish people is not one that ends in suffering, but it's one that ends in hope. And that's where he sees all of this heading. I hope this made a lot of sense of this passage. Like I said, there are some passages in here that um, don't take my word for it. Go read, um, figure things out on your own. I'm not presenting this as the right way to view things. Um, The one thing I'll ask is that you just give grace to one another in your own interpretations of passages like this. um, And that um, we all in some way shape or form recognize that our own understanding of these passages is not the correct way but is just the one way to read this and that we're all trying to in some way shape or form have that same mercy of each other that god is having to both a jew and a gentile thank you guys so much for tuning in to this episode and i'll be back in your feed again next week bye (music)